from PRX. Stew. Stew. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you a, are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show, we try to get to the deep feeling of people. We've got a whole host of chemicals that are activated and start coursing through the body. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. Celle-là. C'est vu aussi. Après celui-là, le migrant. You want me to say how much I love Agnès as a mic test? Agnès, I love you. I've always loved you. Even in 1800, when I was not born and even conceived, I was already thinking of you. You are a clever man. Yeah, sometimes. sometimes. Hello. You're so important. L- listen to that baloney. Is that baloney I can say? You can <laughs> say baloney. That's allowed. It can be hard to get a word in edgewise when the filmmaker Agnes Varda and the photo artist J.R. are settling down in your studio. Agnes Varda is a founding filmmaker of the French New Wave and made classic movies like Cleo from 5 to 7 and One Sings, The Other Doesn't. This year, she'll be getting an honorary Oscar. Although she's the first to acknowledge she never achieved big celebrity or box office. I never got commercial success. I'm still in the border, you know. I decided myself, I am a princess in the border of cinema. And J.R., he is widely known for plastering his gigantic black and white photos all over the built world. So he's a photographer, a maker of public art. I call myself an artist. I don't like street artists. I paste a lot, so would I call myself a wallpaper man? Yeah, you're a civil servant. Exactly. (laughs) These two internationally celebrated French artists came together to collaborate on a new documentary, Faces, Places. They're an unlikely pair. She is 89, he is 34. In the movie, the two of them drive to villages and towns all over France, talking to locals and making portraits of those people, and then blowing up the pictures to monumental scale and pasting them on the sides of factories and barns and houses and trains. It's a fascinating, inspiring, completely charming road trip. So how did these two get together? Agnes's daughter set them up on a kind of play date a couple of years ago. It's crazy that we knew about each other's works for so long, but we actually never met. So I just came to Agnes's house and studio thinking, wow, I have the chance to visit her studio and I'll be there maybe one hour and it's amazing. You, you took some photos of With me. my phone, but then I told you, you should come to my studio if you can. I'll be delighted to have you, which you did the exact next day. Huh. And I took photos of him. And, and you know, the, the crazy thing is when she came to my studio the next day, she spent the you know the entire afternoon and then after we said we should meet again tomorrow and when we met the next day so the third day we actually say okay let's do something and we started walking that day we really thought we could put together our two ways of looking at people mm-hmm. and i've done documentaries so because i give big importance to the people i meet try to give them the opportunity to express themselves to be bigger than life you know and That's what he does with his images, you know. He has done huge images of people. It's a way of recognizing the value of people. Right. Especially people who are not supposed to be in the light. So we had that in common, I think. Well, we we have curiosity together. We're both big, curious people. But there's something really important that many people don't know. We love chouquettes, you know, and chocolate eclair. (laughs) That's an important part? That's an important part because we we ate more chouquettes and eclair than we actually shoot film in this, you know, because we brainstorm so much. Well, it's what we call a sugar mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah? So that was part of the equipment? You just had giant crates of eclairs? Yeah, and also meeting peacefully around the table after or before eating. But the table is a nice place to speak. And putting up ideas, if we we were this, if we went there, and then I, I know a village. He said, oh, I know another place. We started to make a list of places we like, and that started like this. But we, we have a common thing is we're really independent in the way we walk. And on that, we got along really well because we don't work with sponsors. We don't work with brands. We want to be completely free to create the way we want. Right. 
so how long did this take from beginning to end? I, I know, say I know. a year and a half. Yeah, we started in July 1915. Uh, 215. <laughs> 215. Yeah, 215. 2015. Ah, 2015. Yeah, that's yes. okay. What was the world in 215, Agnes? <laughs> but it lasted 18 months, uh -huh. shooting one week a month. Oh, really? Not more than that. I mean, we would eat chuket the rest of the month, but no, 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 we would no. really film that. No. Uh, we had to think about where to go next. Right. And in the village we went, we tried to have their point of view on what we did and helping us to do it. But also Agnes wanted uh, me to get out of cities where I found, you know, the most amazing walls. She wanted to take me into to little, towns. little towns and that was a I great said, thing. Get out of the city, come with me. <laughs> well, that one of the beauties of this film is not only your relationship and your obvious love for each other and all that, but this kind of back and forth humor. It, yes. It's a great road trip, you know, it's, yes. it's like a strange bedfellows. We allow to be humorous about ourselves, but when we film the people, right. we respect them terribly. Absolutely. We will never make jokes about Absolutely. them, especially when they are different. They don't know exactly what they feel about what we do. And there is a scene I love really in the harbor with the docker worker. Right. Well, explain the project. It's dock workers and, and you're making giant pictures of their wives. That's a place that I've walked uh, with all the dockers of this uh, one of, I mean, I think the biggest port in France called Le Havre. I wanted to bring you here because it's with these Christophe, Denis, David. So I wanted to take Agnes there, and she keeps saying, no, this is a big city. Uh, right, it's the one non-village part of the well, they but decided, it is, in a way. They decided it's far from the city. They decided it could be taken <laughs> as a village. counted as a village, yeah. In kind of a village, because they, it's a very closed world that, you know, you can't enter like this. And I wanted to take Agnes, and of course, when she arrived, she was like, wait, there's only men here? Which is true, there's not a single woman walking in the docks. Ah. Well, I, I always have a feminist approach to things. <laughs> to everything. And I thought, not to everything. I'm a feminist. Let's put it that way. And so, when I was in that world of even very, come on, viril. Yeah, the, the, the very, viral the, men. Yeah. No, they no, were men, all... men, men is like... Yeah. And I said, what about their wives? And it's interesting. Oh, so you brought, you, you had yeah. the whole idea of bringing their wives? Yeah. Oh, I went to meet them even out yeah. of JR. Because yeah, that's why she's alone with them. And then, what I was impressed is that when you work on something, you slightly, slightly make the people change. When the man said, it pushes the borders, it pushes the cliché. What we did with their wives made them think. I really believed something happened. So you took these beautiful black and white portraits, head to toe, of the dock workers' wives, then blew them up to like a hundred feet tall and, and pasted those images on the sides of the shipping containers stacked on the docks. Yes, exactly, which we... The heart of every single woman opened, so the door of the container would be open at the level of their heart. Which was beautiful. So uh, about two-thirds of the way up, these stacked containers, one shipping container in each image of each woman was open, and, and she, the subject of that photo, was inside, sitting inside her own heart, so to speak. Which was very high. Very high. Oh, we had terrifying. to take crane to really? take them up there. Yeah, and the one God. who said she was scared, I, I felt that. Oh, yeah. But the men were touched. Touched why, do you think? Because you brought their wives into this manly workplace? Whatever we do, we try to just get to the deep feeling of people. And I really believe the men had something that changed by our coming action and by the fact that their wives suddenly were so big. And the stars. And the stars of the story. Yeah. So we, we enjoyed it because we had the feeling it was not useless. Um, JR, you have been in the news lately in this country for this project you're doing on the U.S.-Mexican border. Uh, can you describe it for people who haven't come oh, yes. across it yes, on, yes, in do it on Instagram <laughs> as I do all the time? beautiful <laughs> subject. I, I dream about walls, and that's true because, you know, I'm always pasting on walls. Now, I dream also about borders because, you know, often they are walls. And uh, that's why one of my earliest projects in the Middle East were on the separation wall, security fence between Israel and Palestine. And when I started hearing a lot about the wall in the news, uh, the, 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 the wall, wall between... You the know, proposed wall, the fence that exists now. Exactly, in, between uh, U.S. and Mexico. You know, that already exists, uh, you know, since like 2007, I think, or something like that. 
I wanted to go uh, there and scout it, and I saw that the fans, you know, had see-through. So I imagine um, someone looking over the wall. Now the first door I knocked at because the house was very close from the wall on the Mexican side. The woman opened and told me that she was following me on Instagram or Facebook. I don't remember. That's I was crazy. Like, wait, are you sure? And then she's like, Yeah, I'm pretty sure. And then I said, Wait, can we check? Because I'm sure you got it wrong. And then. You know, she really knew my work. So she was like, you can paste on the side of my house if you want. And I'm like, oh, I'm actually looking to do something a bit bigger. And then that whole time, there was this little kid in his crib looking at me. And he was, you know, just one year old and looking at me and then also looking at the wall because they live right by it. And then I left. And then when I was driving to Tijuana on the way, I was like, wait, that's the kid. That's the kid that I should photograph. That should be looking over the wall because I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know what his political views are. He's one year old. He don't even know what's a fence. And so I came back, photographed him, and installed him, uh, I think, 60 foot something high, so three times the size of the wall, uh, looking over the wall like a giant sculpture. It's beautiful. Uh, it's an extraordinary image. It's like, it's like one of those movies where somebody gets blown up to be giant size. It's this little, beautiful little baby boy. And if you look perfectly, the, the hands are touching exactly the wall. So there's only one position to look at it from, and where the hands... It's perfectly the wall. So for all the people that came and visited when it was up, they would actually look at it and try to find the angle to take the photo. And often you would have a border patrol car passing or someone walking, and, and that's what the little kid is looking over. It's great. And, and the kid is happy, he's curious, he's looking around, which gives it this lovely, charming aspect. It's not, like, disturbing until you sort of spend some time thinking you, about it. You have to think it over. Yeah. That's proposal. It, it's neutral enough that, that you have to make up your mind. But Very well, true. <laughs> he's making whatever fun, you say. He's, and he's making I say, fun of her, ladies and gentlemen. Normally I say amen to whatever she says. No, I'm trying to understand your work. Oh, thank you. Not to but be... But you're right. I mean, you say it in a great way. Can I film you? You're beautiful. And now you're filming her with your uh, <laughs> iPhone. <laughs> Always. She used to not let me film her. And look at her now. She's giving... At the beginning, it got on my nerves. Uh, no. When he would do this? Yeah. But I cannot fight every day. That's why you win on the long term, trust yes. me. Yes. Yeah. Oh, you just, you just keep at it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next, I want to talk about one of Agnes's films that really seems to foreshadow her work with you, JR. Yes, Murmur. Which is all about murals in Los yeah. Angeles. It came out in 1980, a few years before you were born. Exactly. And when I found Murmur, I was so impressed because the way she looked at them, the way she looked at how they interact with the city, and it's just, it's so contemporary. When I look at it now, I'm like, this this is what we should... From 37 years, 38 years yeah, ago. Yeah, I don't know, it speaks to me in a huge way, of course, because I do murals, but it also inspired me to, to work on new murals. Really? It really back. affected your work? Oh, yeah, definitely. When you made Murmur's, Agnes, it's somewhat about the human stories behind the muralist. Right? What was? What, why did you make the that? The point is that people need, and they don't always have the opportunity to express themselves. And so these people were expressing themselves on the wall. Some artists were against the gallery system, and they thought they should do art for free for the people. And so they did beautiful murals. They made things that sometimes disappeared. And then also, there were no respect. So sometimes the neighbor would put just white on the wall. There was no idea that it was art. Right. It was natural, popular art. And I was so impressed by what I saw. And now, uh, 30-something years later, you are collaborating with another muralist, this guy. So here is an image of one of JR's murals from his Wrinkles of the City series, which features portraits of old people pasted onto old buildings in cities around the world. Uh, will, will you describe uh, this image, Agnes? On a wall, on a big wall, there is that woman, Chinese woman, looking up. We don't know if she's mad or if she smiles, which I love. The way the wall is placed. Behind her, huge skyscrapers are the world. Yes. The Graziel, skyscrapers. So the humanity of that face with the series of buildings, we know that people live in it, but it looks like stones. So it's like stones in which people live and one face and one face is always a miracle for me. And her face is, and what, I, 50 feet tall, I guess, something like that. Uh, do I describe it well, Monsieur Bugier? Oui, Madame Varda. <laughs> uh, it was in Shanghai, 
And uh, it was part of a series called Wrinkles of the City, which actually was the first thing Agnes showed me when I came to her house and said, you will like me because I saw you like wrinkles in, your, in this project. And look at my hands. I have so many for you. It's not wrinkles. I decided it's a landscape. There you go. With reverse, well, I think of the landscape as wrinkles. Fields, yes. different fields, yeah. dark fields, yeah. Yeah. And, and some woods. Ah. Agnes, you, your great, gorgeous breakthrough film was Cleo from 5 to 7, which came out in 1962. We've got a clip we're going to play. Uh, mm-hmm. It's in French. And maybe you, JR, uh, can tell us what's happening in the scene as it plays. Yes, sure. So that's, we're looking at Cleo right now in the street of Paris. You know, one of the things also I have to say on a personal level, why I love those films and this film particularly, it depicts Paris in a way that doesn't exist anymore. Really, just from 1961, yeah. Yeah. And We are in a coffee shop. Yeah. All right. And also and that's where she learned that she's, she's being ill. Just yeah. learned that she's sick she has and cancer. she's expecting well, she's expecting the results. Right. She doesn't so know. That's why the time is so sharp. The, the story of Cleo is a personal story about how that woman is full of fear. And it becomes a personal story, very pathetic in a way, because being afraid of dying, you know, is a terrible theme especially for that beautiful woman. Yes, I so highly recommend this film. I, I, I saw it in a college film course when I was in college. I went back and watched it. It's, it's a great movie. And as you're saying, just seeing circa 1960 Paris, yeah. it's like, whoa, young people, go watch this film. But the thing is that at that time, I had in mind, especially not only to tell her story, but to tell it in a real time. The film starts at 5 and ends at 6.30. And minute after minute... We follow her. We never leave right. her. So I gave myself what you call the contraint, the uh, you know, a hard constraint. Right. So to oblige myself to believe that the time is mechanical, you know, you cannot change it. I don't know how long we have spoken, you know, etc. But there is a subjective time right. that we feel. Sometimes it goes fast. Sometimes we don't understand what happened. So I was trying to have the feelings expressed in that frame. It's so modern in in so many ways, like the constraint of the real time, the hour and a half, uh, the fact that it's all about this one woman dealing with this terror of dying. It's it's an extraordinary movie. So, Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, I was looking back at the coverage of you in the New York Times back then, and in the early 1970s, there was an article in the New York Times about all, all female film directors. And it said, almost none have achieved prominence anywhere in the world. Only uh, Lenny Reifenstahl and Agnes Varda and and one other female filmmaker were named. So did it feel that I have to work twice as hard to... to, No, 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 no. no. no? It felt that I called all the women, get up, get out of your kitchen, learn to be technician, learn the sound, learn the screenplay, learn everything, you know. And little by little they came in the field of cinema, not only as directors. Right. But in France, we are the champion of women directors. We have hundreds. And here, it's slow. Right. You have star like Kathleen Bigelow and some, you know, famous ones. But mostly, we have more women working. Yeah. And they do sound, and they do mixing, and they do director of photography. Right. Uh, but as you say, it is a slow process of change. Agnes and JR, I just want to say once more how much I love this new film, Faces Places, um, and, and such a great advertisement for, for France. The government should pay for everybody on earth to see it. Uh, it's just so completely charming. You know, everybody told us it's charming, it's lovely. It gets on my nerves because it's a serious documentary. It doesn't have to be sociologic attitude. We want to smile we want to enjoy life. In the time we, we do our work, giving power to the people we meet, giving them light, enlarging their faces, make them be more important. That was our work. I don't like that to be totally hidden before, right. behind the couple, the so-called funny couple that we are. Well, but also it's, it's unlike uh, many important documentaries, it's, there's nothing depressing or disturbing about it. No, but you can smile, you can cry, you can laugh. There's a lot of that in there. Yeah. We're always surprised. The first time we screened the film, we're like, wait, people are laughing. And then it's like, oh, 
I'm mad at this. We didn't make a funny movie. I'm like, let it happen. And yes, if they laugh, it was not supposed yeah. to be a joke. But, but if they but find it funny. They cry also. Yeah. A sure. lot of people said I that. choked up a lot, definitely. So it's just getting something which is in life. Totally contrasted feelings wherever you go. Uh, well, I'm happy this date was arranged, which is to say you were introduced and that you made this film and that you came here. Agnes Varda, JR, this has been such a wonderful pleasure. Thank you. Agnes Varda and JR's film, Faces Places, is screening now in some cities and is rolling out across America. Go see it. Merci, Kurt. Thank you. De rien, Agnes. <laughs> Coming up, his high school buddies were into Rocky and Jurassic Park, but it was a very different movie that became an obsession for the comedian Hari Kondabolu. At some point, I remember going to a store and actually buying a VHS tape of Untamed Hearts, which I think must have been strange to see, like, a teenage South Asian boy with a copy of Untamed Heart. A young man falls hard for romantic drama. That's next in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. Studio 360. Mom? If you recently watched a horror movie, it's all but certain that you encountered a jump scare. That's when a movie startles the audience with some ghastly surprise, a completely predictable surprise. The maniac jumping down from the tree, the zombie appearing in the bathroom mirror, the severed head in the fridge, all accompanied, of course, by a loud noise. You really didn't see nearly as many jump scares before the 1980s. Movies like Carrie and The Omen each only had a single jump scare. Those movies establish a simmering sense of anxiety and terror moving toward a boil, the idea being that these worlds are scary places and you don't need a maniac bringing out of a manhole every 10 minutes to be terrifying. When I go to a movie and come to the sixth or seventh jump scare in two hours, I resent it. There's a big new hit horror film that everybody loves, but there is this one big disagreement about it. Does it go overboard on the jump scares? So I just saw It, and I really liked a lot about It, and I think it's really paving the way for horror films in the future. But if we're going to talk about what I didn't like about It... There's a jump scare once every five minutes. And as soon as a horror film establishes a pattern of how the jump scares work, they lose their oomph. My name is Jack Nugent, and I am the creator of Now You See It, a video essay series. I analyze movie tropes, so I'll talk about any topic that kind of seems to come up in multiple places in visual storytelling. So if you go far back enough, you can go as far back as silent film and early German silent expressionism. You know, you would show a monster from far away, and then you'd cut to an extreme close-up. And I think people really understood from the get-go that the rapid changing of an image on screen is a frightening image. That's where it starts, and as sound is introduced, that brings in a whole new wave of what is scary. Hi, this is Alex Raviello. I wrote about the history of jump scares for Slash Film. There's a scene in The Cat People in 1942. It's a scene where a woman is walking down the secluded street. There's someone behind her. She doesn't know quite where the, the person is. It's very dark. It gets more and more tense. She's looking over her shoulder. She knows something's there. And it builds up, and then finally, a bus pulls into frame. And it's just like this perfect moment of just tension and then release. Come on, sister. Are you riding with me or ain't you? That is basically known as one of the first jump scares of all time. Dr. No directed The Cat People, although Val Luton usually gets credit. Val Luton, the man who thrilled audiences with his unique brand of terror. He was a famed horror movie producer in the 1940s, and that was his first film. And it's, you know, whenever a cat jumps out of a closet, <laughs> or, you know, a friend pops up behind someone and it's not actually the real killer. Oh, Jesus, oh. Will. I'm sorry. 
It became known as the Luton Bus. It's still known to this day as that. But there weren't too many jump scares in early cinema. There were a handful. One of the most famous is Psycho. As soon as the startle or the jump scare hits, we've got a whole host of chemicals that are activated and start coursing through the body. My name's Margie Kerr. I'm a sociologist, and I study fear and how the brain and body respond in times of high stress and thrilling situations. We do see the release of our endogenous uh, endocannabinoids, so we've got our our own version of uh, THC that is released along with the the endorphins. And that's likely an adaptation uh, evolutionarily because in these times of stress, it probably meant that we also might be hurt. So our body, you know, learned over time it was a good idea to prepare for any pain and not let that interfere with our survival. But when we know that, you know, there's not actually a a ghost that's going to jump through our screen and, and get us, the endorphins, the dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin can then you know, lend to feeling even a little bit euphoric and feeling uh, excited. And that's where you see the the screams turning to laughter. It's just a, a reframing of these physiological experiences. But once you start making everything a jump scare, you know, someone's behind you or your friend just scares you. I mean, that's a cheap jump scare because it's not earned. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm crazy after all. <laughs> If you just do it for no reason, it's, it gives you a shock and then the audience kind of goes back to normal. But the most effective ones, the ones that we've seen, the ones we always think about, are ones that, that, that were built up to. Hello? People think of jump scare as that one second of a crash. But really, it's about how you get to that crash and how you earn the crash. It's almost like a little film in itself. So it starts, starts with some kind of question, some character leading somewhere. There's a long moment in the middle where you're not sure what's going to happen. And during that time of anticipation, when we look at what the body is doing, a lot of the chemical responses associated to, you know, the fight or flight are already in the works. Your body is gearing up for this anticipated jump. Hello? Anybody here? It's been a technique that's constantly been used. I don't think it's ever going to go anywhere because it, it is so effective. The problem is that, you know, we're so conditioned now to expect jump scares that it's, it's hard to scare audiences. People were trying to subvert that and then do their own turn on it. So there would be a sequence when normally, you know, somebody close a mirror and something would pop up behind them. But something wouldn't happen there. It would happen on the next beat. So they would try to play with that. There's um, a really great scene in Jaws where he's looking around the wreckage of the boat and he finds a shark tooth. And that is what you expect to be the climax of the scene. He's about to leave when he notices that there's a severed head. You're not expecting it in any way. You, You have that false sense of safety. You thought that the tooth was the climax of that scene. Like you can feel it coming without knowing where it's gonna come up. That kind of jump scare requires so much patience and actually very good writing. More recently, there are movies like The Witch or It Comes at Night that almost have no jump scares whatsoever. And it's because you're expecting jump scares, you're, you're constantly on edge because like, this is a horror movie, it's gotta have jump scares in it. And then when it doesn't, we're almost more petrified. Like, something, something is wrong here. There should be a jump scare. It's more about this, this mood, this kind of crippling atmosphere. So I don't know. It's maybe the new jump scare is the anti-jump scare, not having a jump scare. As light as a feather and as hard as dragon scales. My favorite jump scare, and it's not even in a horror movie, is in The Lord of the Rings. Frodo has the ring on his neck, and Bilbo Baggins... My old ring. He kind of lunges out at Frodo. And it's a jump scare where his face gets all scary and he turns evil and really jumps out at him and the music, there's a big crash and everything. That jump scare really is earned. And 
what it does is it unsettles you for the rest of the movie because you doubt yourself. And whenever you see the ring again, you remember what it could do to somebody. Yeah, good jump scare has to leave you feeling like it's going to happen any moment. You're never safe. And as soon as a horror film is going in a way and you don't know when the jump scares are going to be... That's when they become awesome. Studio 360's Sam Kim produced that story. You can watch Jack Nugent's video essay, Why Jump Scares Suck, on our site at pri.org slash studio360. You can also find there a link to Alex Riviello's article on the cinematic history of jump scares. A target audience for those jump scare horror movies, of course, is teenage boys. But when the comedian Hari Kondabolu was that age in the 1990s, he veered about as far from the horror genre as you can get. Our Guilty Pleasures feature is about the thing somebody loves that's unpopular or unfashionable or just completely unexpected. For our latest installment, we asked Hari to tell us about his movie obsession. Untamed Heart began the process of brainwashing me into thinking that relationships were just about love. That, like, as long as you have love, there are no other complications. My name is Hari Kondabolu. I'm a stand-up comedian. And my guilty pleasure is the 1993 romantic film Untamed Heart. Magic Records and a baboon heart. You almost got me believing in it. Untamed Heart is a romance film that stars uh, Christian Slater. I was wondering if you think about me half as much as I think about you. And Marissa Tomei. I don't want you to die. I love you. With wonderful support work by Rosie Perez. You mother-effing, lousy, filthy pig. Your mother's a slut and your father's a hoe. The first time I ever saw Untamed Heart, it was probably the end of junior high school or early high school. I think that was around the time I was like, oh, discovering girls. And it's like, Marissa Tomei, wow. And we used to get HBO for free for a week, you know, because they used to have those previews. And uh, so I remember seeing it midway through and being amazed, like, I've never had these feelings before, and I feel sad. And at the same time, I want to feel that kind of feeling that they're having. I believe it's called love. And at some point, I remember going to a store and actually buying a VHS tape of Untamed Heart, which I think must have been strange to see, like, a teenage South Asian boy with a copy of Untamed Heart. Like, it's, I don't think people would have expected that, but... Maybe that Reddit form hasn't been created yet. The opening scene of the film was uh, Marissa Tomei runs into her home and she's about to go on a date, so she's changing out of her waitress clothes. And Suzanne Vega's song Tom's Diner, the remix version, was playing while she was changing. Very 90s. And Marissa Tamey runs down and goes into the car, and it's clear that the guy isn't as into her as she is into him. You don't want to see me anymore? No, I didn't say that. It's just, maybe we should just start seeing other people. And it's kind of this constant that you see of things just not working out in her life. She works at a diner. Then one night, uh, Caroline's walking home, and two guys who had been bothering her at the diner had followed her and attempted to rape her. Uh, At which point, Christian Slater's character, who's the busboy named Adam, takes a 2x4 or 4x4. I really don't know uh, the dimensions of the piece of wood, but then knocked them both unconscious. And uh, takes her home. So then they start falling in love with each other. I'm going to fall in love with you. You don't have to love me back. 
14-year-old me is like, oh, my God, you can say that and you can feel that? Like, this is, this is new. It, it was very confusing because uh, usually when you, like, think of puberty, you don't think of complex emotions, you know? You think of, like, that girl's hot. And it wasn't that. It was like, this is really beautiful. So, tell me what he's like. He's an orphan. Really? He's a lot smarter than people think. He thinks he's got, thinks he's got a baboon's heart. Christian Slater claims that he has uh, a baboon's heart. It's just a story. One of those nuns at that orphanage told a scared little boy who didn't know why he was so scared. He's got some kind of heart problem. And so he believed till adulthood that it was a baboon's heart. This becomes a bigger factor when the two guys that Adam beat up earlier to save Caroline come back and stab him which sends him to the hospital, and because of the enlarged heart, he almost dies, and he refuses to get a heart transplant because he's worried that if he gets a new heart, he can't love Caroline the same. Adam, the heart you have is diseased. No one is taking away my heart. You were just a kid. It was just a story. You're going to die someday if you don't do something about it. This, This is my heart. Adorable. So anyway, he doesn't get the uh, the transplant, and you see like a montage of about a year of their life and how deeply they fall in love with each other, and then uh, Adam dies, uh, which I-, I suppose in some ways is a spoiler, but you know what's going to happen. I never knew life could be like that. It was the one thing I followed through with in my life, the one thing I didn't give up on. The film doesn't have a happy ending, but in some ways that's the important part. It's the fact that she loves him so much and that her crying at the end and her mourning shows how much she loved him. You get that sense, especially when she's by herself in his apartment, holding his vinyl records, listening to the same Nat King Cole song that they play earlier, which is Nature Boy. And the thing is, if he hadn't died at the end, they might have still broken up, you know? You don't actually know that. Maybe, you know, he was bad with money. Maybe he doesn't want to have kids and she does, or vice versa. Maybe he's so awkward, her family can't handle it anymore, and she's like, all right. I mean, there's all sorts of things that happen. Life is complicated, but it totally began the process of brainwashing me into thinking this is how love worked. I mean, people ask you what your favorite film is, and it depended on if I wanted to be honest or not. And if I wanted to be honest, I would tell them Untamed Heart. If not, I think I probably said Newsies, and then I realized that wasn't a thing you could say either. It was hard to tell that to to other guys. Like, yeah, my favorite movie's Untamed Heart. It's like, really? It's not Cliffhanger or Rocky or Jurassic Park? As a teenage boy, you're not supposed to have feelings like this. You're not supposed to want to fall in love, I think. And you're not supposed to appreciate two characters who are in love. Like, it's... We're not really taught that. I've fallen. Did you hurt yourself? (laughs) I wasn't finished. I've fallen so in love with you. There's incredible chemistry between Marissa Tomei and Christian Slater, and I think Marissa Tomei really makes this film. And I'm not just saying this as the, like, 14-year-old boy that was in love with Marissa Tomei or the 34-year-old man who was still in love with Marissa Tomei. But, I mean, this opened a door for me. Like, after this, I saw Love Story, 1970, with Ali McGraw, Ryan O'Neill. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Bed of Roses. Why are you so afraid to be happy? Don't you think that he's worth the risk? Far and away, not a good movie. I pretend I love you. I pretend I love you too. Untamed Heart. This started the whole thing. There was a boy A very strange enchanted boy They say he wandered very far, very far. That was comedian Hari Kondabolu. Our piece was produced by Studio 360's Skylar Swenson. 
You can see Hari live on his stand-up tour this fall or listen to his podcast, Politically Reactive. Coming up, you or certainly your teenaged kids would recognize this pop song if we played it at normal speed. So much more beautiful. How slowing down changes everything. Arden Reed explains what slow art means and why you really ought to park yourself in front of that Hopper painting. That's next in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. Studio 360. I first thought that slow art must be some collection of objects. And as the calendar pages fell from the wall, I gradually realized that slow art was instead an experience or a collection of encounters. It's what transpires between you, the viewer, and whatever it is you're looking at. When we look at a painting or a photograph or a piece of sculpture in a museum, we spend just seconds looking at it. Is that enough time to really get it? Professor Arden Reed doesn't think so. He has taken a long, slow look at visual art and how we experience it in his new book, appropriately titled Slow Art. He says that learning to take our time looking at art isn't so easy. It takes practice. I'm saying something like watching a slow art video is good training for looking at a painting. But in fact, so is listening to a Bach cello solo. I think all of these time-based arts are useful in helping us deal with with paintings, which, of course, I'm maintaining are equally time-based arts, but not apparently so. Right. It requires the viewer to unpack it over time uh, without instruction manual. And if it's a really good work of art, we never get it unpacked. There's a, a great line that I quote from Ed Ruscha, the Los Angeles artist. Somebody asked him, how can you tell a good artwork from a bad? And Ruscher said, with a bad artwork, you look at it and you immediately say, wow. Hmm. But then you take a second look and you say, mm, maybe not. With a good artwork, he says, it's just the opposite. Right. Although th- there are works that make it easier to be slow art and therefore kind of belong to a canon, right? Well, the best example that I've heard comes from the 18th century philosopher Diderot who said that Artwork calls to you from afar and then stops you in your tracks and then holds you there. So to answer your question, certainly there are works that call to us. Right. And one of the things that interested me was, were there certain artworks that seemed to build into their structure a call to slow down? Uh-huh. And we're talking about um, mainly, although I'm going to try to push you into other realms, visual art, right? I mean, paintings and sculptures and photography and videos and so forth. And performance, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So um, a, a painting that I think everyone is familiar with, perhaps more than any other, is Edward Hopper's Nighthawks, which you also think is a good example of a painting that can reward the slowness and the slow art experience. So this was a painting from 1942, and the painting is called Nighthawks, and it, it has four characters in a diner. There's a soda jerk, there is a couple of women in a red dress, and a man sitting next to her in a fedora, and on the opposite side of the counter, another man with his back to us. That Hopper invites us to think about narrative. Who are these four people? Right. Why should they be gathered at this particular moment? What makes them Nighthawks? Um, the man and woman seated in the middle of the painting certainly appear to be a couple, otherwise they wouldn't be seated that closely, and yet they don't seem to be interacting at all. The other thing that's so interesting about it is that this light, and apparently at the time, fluorescent lighting was new, and it casts a kind of cold but intense light over the whole scene and then extends back into the street. So we're invited into this scene 
but we're also kept out of it because the most curious thing about the painting is that there's no door into this diner. It's a, a, a piece of glass that wraps around from one side to the other. So on the one hand, we're given access to this scene, and on the other hand, we're excluded from it. And that seems to me to be a kind of definition of desire itself, that which incites our, our interest, our activity, our reaching out, and, and then on the other hand, pushes us away. And one of the things I think that is uh, why this is such an attractive picture to people is it looks like a storyboard or a scene from a noir film. There certainly is something about this painting that reminds people of a movie still. And I think that's another thing that makes it a wonderful example of slow art. You can imagine that the scene will change in another minute, that the man with the cigarette in his hand is going to raise the fag to his lips and take a puff. But for now, everything is suspended. Right. Um, an artist I know that you and I uh, both adore uh, very much because you write about him in this book is, is James Terrell. And I remember the first time I heard that, oh, he does this whole thing, these sky rooms where you go and you sit on a bench at the edge and they're just a hole uh, in the ceiling and the roof and you look up at the sky. And I thought, oh, that's like a parody of charlatanism. But then, of course, I went to one and was beguiled and besotted and it's extraordinary. Um, and it's all about just learning to look at the sky as though it's a work of art and all the, the changing subtleties of color and shade and light and all that. So the those seem like ultimate slow art uh, experiences. Do you agree? I think the, the trick with the Terrell sky space is getting yourself in the frame of mind to, to slow down and, and appreciate it because you can walk in and be worried about your money troubles and you'll have no experience at all. Right. It's, it's a sort of subtle interplay between the artwork and your mood, your willingness to open yourself to cooperate to imagine that less might be more. And to the extent that you're willing to do that, a sky space will repay the experience. And you know, one of the things that I think is so wonderful about the sky space is Terrell says, it encourages us to watch ourselves watching, to perceive right. ourselves perceiving. Right. And once you've had a sky space experience, you can do the same thing in nature. You don't need a, a Terrell sky space. Absolutely. You can, no, you that's can look a at a sunset. You don't talk uh, about music, I don't think, in the book, but thinking of uh, John Cage's piece called As Slow As Possible, uh, which it, it could last, it can last a brief time, it can last a, a long time. It just, the, the instructions say the performers should play it as slow as possible. Here's a clip of it being played. And so on for an hour. Uh, that is uh, the version as performed by the pianist uh, Sabine Liebner of As Slow As Possible by John Cage. And by the way, it's being performed really as slow as possible at a church in Halberstadt, Germany uh, over the next 600 and something years. Uh, that's definitely slow art, right? I, you know, I think what's funny is that you, you played a little clip that must have lasted about 10 seconds right. of a work that Cage wrote to last 639 years. Yes. Yes. And, and in fact, the genesis of that work was Cage's most famous composition, uh, 433, where a pianist sits down at, at a piano and nothing happens for four minutes and 33 seconds. Right. Which is, I think, a, another wonderful slow art experience because it does what a Terrell does. It makes you perceive yourself perceiving. It attunes you to whatever noises there are going on in the auditorium. But, of course, because we're on a radio show, all of these slow experiences get compressed. Right. Um, my producer found this interesting work, which is about fat, the fastest kind of pop art slowing down. Uh, people are online, are taking pop songs and slowing them down by 800 times <laughs> to, to create that. actually then what sounds like, you know, artsy, experimental, you know, whale songs or something. Uh, here is one uh, example.
which sounds beautiful and avant-garde and like 450 copies would sell. But do you know what that is? It's Justin Bieber's Baby, which of course sounds like this. But did you notice how that sounded like it could come from a cathedral? Well, exactly. And again, not that we can in our, in our minds, or at least my mind, slow anything down 800 times and experience music that way. It does suggest that it's, it's all there, just a matter of context and the nature of our engagement and consumption, right? Yeah. Bingo. Thank you, Arden. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. That's Arden Reed, a professor at Pomona College and the author of the new book, Slow Art. That's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is Louis Mitchell. Our producers are Sam Kim, Skylar Swenson, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian. And our production assistant is Claude Gillette. I'm Kurt Anderson. Can I film you? You're beautiful. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Public Radio International. Next week on Studio 360, when your scientist dad takes up tango dancing. I probably look very nerdy. It's just my personality. I, I don't want to be... Uh, very showy. Do, ...do dramatic things. An extreme tango makeover in our hour about dance. Next week in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. <laughs>